I actually didn't grow up in church. It wasn't really something that I knew a lot about. And um, for a number of years, um, I just simply didn't know the Lord. I first experienced Christ uh, through others. And I remember one evening I asked my wife, we'd probably been married now for less than a year. I just asked Sarah, I said, why is your mom so nice? And she said, that's Jesus. I said, I want some of that. That's, uh, you know, that's what I'm looking for. It's something that it didn't happen overnight. You know, for us, it, it took a while for me to warm up to the idea, but found a church home and at that point in time, there was no looking back. We joined a wonderful Sunday school class. That, for me, made all the difference. I had a lot of questions, you know, and surrounding myself with other uh, you know, followers of Christ allowed me to have a lot of my questions answered. Not only that, but continually growing in the Word, I think, for me, was very, very helpful. And also, at the point in time when I started serving others, started working within the community, that was very meaningful to really be the hands and feet of Christ. And I think at that point, that's when I really, really fell in love with the Lord. Wow. That's when I really, really, really fell in love with the Lord. Today we look at Jesus as Savior. Last week we looked at Jesus as Lord. Today we move to our belief in Jesus as Savior. Several, several years ago, I was teaching a Sunday school class on Romans. And I remember the day that we dealt with this passage in the Sunday school class. And, and I said these words. I said, there is nothing we do to deserve God's forgiveness that comes through Christ. It is only by having faith in Jesus Christ that our separation from God is bridged. There is nothing we do to deserve this grace. It is given freely out of God's love for us. It is given freely out of God's love for us. <laughs> I had a lady raise her hand right away. And so I paused and kind of gave her a chance to speak or ask her question. And she said, you mean I have wasted all these years trying to be good? She said, if I don't have to do anything, why I've been trying to be good? Everybody laughed, and I didn't know whether she was kidding or serious, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, how do I respond to this? So I tried to put on a big smile, you know, and tried not to be confrontive or to, to call her out, but I did say, Jane, how is that working for you? And it kind of shocked her. And everybody in the class got quiet. And I thought, oh, no. You know. And I said, she looked at me confused. And so I said, how is the trying to be good working for you? And then she understood. And she kind of smiled and she nodded but didn't say anything. How is the trying to be good working for you? How's it working for you? That day we went on to discuss how not one person has ever justified themselves before God with their actions. We all fall short. The scriptures are clear. 
And if we were to do an inventory of our own life, we would discover the same thing. We all fall short. We all fall short. Uh, Unfortunately, there's a belief uh, that we can earn God's favor that is rampant in our culture today. And I've got some opinions about why this is the case. But here's the statistics. A recent study was done um, this past spring. This is what they found out. 70% of the population, Christian, non-Christian, believe that one can earn God's favor with their actions. 70, almost 70, just short of 70%. Um, and the rest of them don't believe in God. But anyway, um, I was shocked by that. I thought, I thought that we preach salvation by grace through Jesus Christ and that people would know both in the church and outside of the church that that's who we are. Almost 70% think that they can earn God's favor. Here's the really disturbing part. Of Christians, and we're talking active Christians, it's a little over 50% that believe that they can earn God's favor with their actions. Now, I, I don't know if there's anybody in this room that has that understanding. I think down deep, we kind of had this, this, this feeling that if, if we are just good enough, that God's going to love us. If I can just be that good person with good thoughts, if I can stay away from the temptations that that God's going to love me. But the Christian message is clear. It's simple. God loved us first. God loved us first. Not because of our actions but because God made us. We are God's. And and this basic message of the Christian faith is not that difficult to understand. It is straightforward. It is clear. It is stated again and again in the New Testament message. In Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not any of your own doing, but a gift from God. I remember Bishop Rhymes Moncure, godly, godly man. Oh, my goodness, I had tremendous respect for the man. His first annual conference that he led with us, I remember him saying, and (laughs) anyway, I'm not going to go there with bishops, but anyway, um, I don't want to get myself in trouble. Uh, He said, he says, it's this simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If you understand that, he said, then everything else falls into place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Doug Miller was at that annual conference. Do you remember that, Doug? Do you remember what Bishop Moncure did that night? During the ordination service. No, that's okay. Doug's got a short memory. Um, 
during the ordination service, he washed the feet of all the ordinance. The bishop, the big kahuna, would not allow those ordinands to have his hands put upon them until he washed their feet. And I told him afterwards, I said, Bishop, I will follow you anywhere because you get it. You get it. So the question that I want to discuss this morning as we look at Romans chapter 5 is, have we fully accepted the saving grace through Jesus' sacrifice? Have we fully accepted that? Or are we still trying to win God's favor? Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May these words be your words. Lord, hide me behind the cross. And I, I would, Lord, I would ask that any spirit that would stand against your word would be rebuked in Jesus' name. And that you would be with our worship and with these words and for all that I don't speak, that you would fill in the gaps and for all that I misspeak, oh God, that you would correct in our hearing. Lord, may we all hear your word for us today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, I could spend six weeks preaching on just this passage. That is how chalked full of theology that this passage of Scripture is. And, but I'm going to focus on the one major aspect of this passage, and that is that God has died for us in spite of who we are. He says, beginning with verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person might be actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul wants us to know that in spite of who we are and what we have done, that God loves us. And in these verses, he uses three terms to describe us. While we were still weak... Weak being that basically that Greek word is used in the context of being, um, uh, being uh, vulnerable to temptation. While we were still weak. Uh, the second, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly being those who do not worship God and reject God. God. Die, Jesus died for them too? And while we were still sinners, and the word there for sinners is those who miss the mark, they don't live up to what God has made us to be, Christ died for us. Then he continues in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, and by the way, that Greek word is not missing mistranslated, that's what it says. Enemies standing against God, doing battle against God. 
While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely having been recognized, we will be saved by his life. Four times in verses 6 through 8, the Greek word apothenikos is used, which means to die. And here's what's interesting about what Paul is doing here is that he uses as a preposition the word hyper, which is a common Greek preposition from which we get our, you know, uh, preface for words hyper, hyperventilate, hyper whatever. And, and, and what's interesting here is that it's difficult to translate the phrase hyper apokito, because the intensity and and the and the emphatic tone can't be captured in in English. I mean, when Paul is saying that Christ died for us, I mean, it is it is a powerful affirmation of how much God loves us, even though we don't deserve it. We are weak, ungodly. We fail to live up to God's expectations. And now, according to Paul, even enemies. And yet he dies for us. And if we go back to verse 5, what we learn there is that God doesn't, God doesn't hold back his love. In verse 5, it says that he has poured out, ekio, into our hearts this love. And what ekio in the Greek means is, it is it's not just, okay, I'm going to pour myself a drink of water. It is a pouring that has an unlimited supply that will not be depleted. He has poured into our hearts and it continues to pour and it cannot be stopped and it will continue to pour until finally we respond and receive it. Paul also uses the analogy of what Christ has done for us in comparison. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And what he's saying here is that a righteous person is someone that you respect. Okay? So rarely, I'm going to die for somebody that I respect. I'm kind of looking around the room trying to decide which of you that I would die for. Maybe you might want to do the same thing. Um, A good person in the Greek is a person that we love. Now, I can pretty clearly name those people in my life, the ones that I would die for. Rarely for a respected person for a person we love, well, a little more. But God loves 
and dies for us without qualification. Do you hear that? I mean, have we we truly lost the sense of what is being done for us? Have we become so, so, that we heard it so many times that we have lost the significance? In 1982, and I know most of you in this, in this room don't remember 1982. Uh, I've read about it, by the way. And uh, in 1982 was the year that the Vietnam Veterans uh, Memorial was dedicated in Washington, D.C. And what they did was they, they took parts of it and they would, it was a mobile unit that they took around to the major cities in the United States and they would have parades and dedications in those locations also. And Chicago, Illinois, I think it was in November of that year that Chicago had their parade. They had a dedication there. And it was one of the most well-attended other than the original in Washington, D.C. And the news media was ready because what they wanted to do was to get sound bites from the veterans that had come to the dedication. The most significant of those interviews happened with a veteran. And the news media said, the reporter said to him, where are you from? And he says, I'm from Tallahassee. Tallahassee? He said, you fly from, no, I drove. He said, you drove all this way to be at this dedication? I, I, don't, I don't understand. He says, why would you, why would you drive all this way for, for this dedication? You could have seen it on television. And the man turned to the granite wall, and there was a name there that he had been standing across from, and he began to trace the name with his fingers. And he said, because this man... This one right here. Do you see his name? And tears begin to come down his face. This man here died for me in battle. He gave his life for me and saved me. That's why I'm here. The reporter had nothing to say. As they begin to fade back, you could see the weeping of the veteran as he recalled the sacrifice that has been that had been given for him. How many times have we come to the altar during Holy Communion and wept for the sacrifice that has been given for us? How many times have we traced the name of Jesus in our Bibles or or, or at other places and wept for the life that he gave for us? How many times have we truly let it sink in what God has done for us, the sacrifice that God has made for us, the suffering? He didn't deserve it. Jesus was spotless. died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish 
but have eternal life. For this reason, I can say with confidence that Jesus may have been a great teacher, but he was not just a teacher. May have been a miracle worker, but he was not just a miracle worker. He may have been a, a, a healer, but he was not just a healer. Jesus came to set us free from the chains of this life to live fully in God's presence. And it is only through Jesus Christ that we can claim that life for ourselves. And when the last drop of blood came to the ground at Golgotha, all of creation shook. Rocks broke open. It was the single most cataclysmic event in world history. His death on our behalf, his portrayal of God's love for us. Jesus died for us because we matter to God more than we can ever understand. Fifty-something percent. I wonder how many of those sit in this room today or how many have joined us online. I I would pray this morning that you would lay aside that. And Now, I'm not saying that (laughs) being good and, and following a moral and ethical imperative is not what is right for all of our lives. But ultimately, we fail. And we are in need of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And I wonder how many of us have completely accepted that for our lives. I think all of us understand it. I think all of us do. But have we acted on it? So let me, let me make just a recommendation. These are a couple of things that, that, uh, that I find helpful. And maybe you can too. First is look at your focus. Look at your focus. Because my focus can no longer be on myself or my circumstances if I'm going to accept Jesus as, as Savior. My focus must now be on the Savior and his purposes. To let him take residence in my heart. To let him take the throne of my heart. And to recognize and accept that he has a great plan for this world. And I am a part of that plan. And to ask the question. This is a part of my prayer time. Lord, what are you trying to accomplish in me? What are you trying to accomplish through me? In your plan for this world. Focus. Uh, Second, attitude. You know, if we, if we focus on God and on, on what Jesus has done for us every day, it starts to change our attitude. You know, it's, we don't change our attitude and behavior because we are afraid of judgment or, or we have experienced God's punishment. No, it, it, what we see in the New Testament is that, that God has loved us so much and God has given that love to us. That is what changes us. It shifts our attitude. 
For once we take the focus off of ourselves, once we take the focus off, to our, off of our pain and concentrate on the, the possibilities of what God might accomplish in and through me. At that point, we no longer wallow in self-pity. We no longer wonder about God's goodness or faithfulness. We see what God is doing, even in the worst situations. And if we don't, we trust and have faith that we eventually will. We see wondering whether something that is bad has happened is a punishment, for we know that it cannot be true. And when our Focus is right. Our attitude includes submission, humility, and gratitude. And finally, joy. And that's really the goal. Joy is really the goal. As the Lord makes me teachable, humble, and grateful, joy begins to bubble up in all of life. And it it comes from seeing God's presence on a daily basis and looking for where, where God is. To, to consciously, intentionally look for where God is. And you know what? I, I don't know about you, but I find this joy to be contagious. As, you know, as, as Chad said, I want that. When I see it, I want it. I may not know God's purpose, but I know God is good, and I know of God's love, and that makes even the worst of times serenely good. You know, every week, Monday through Friday across our nation's courts go into session, and And there are judges that sit there. Sometimes there's juries, but judge oversees the proceedings. And typically it is the judge that that gives out the penalty for a guilty plea or for a guilty uh, conviction. Let's say, for example, that someone has embezzled $50,000 from their company and they have gone to Las Vegas and they have blown it all in gambling. And they've been caught red-handed. Now, I don't know for sure, but I think that that's a federal offense, which means that it's a minimum, you know, uh, uh, a a minimum, what's it called? Sentence. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a minimum sentence. And, And I think the minimum sentence is the amount that you embezzled, eight years in prison with the possibility of parole. Um, so let's say a man or a woman is, is convicted. They stand before the judge. And the judge says, your fine is $50,000. Your sentence is 10 years in prison. Now, the, the person knew it was coming. But still, to hear the words would be devastating. What the man did not or the woman did not expect was that with that, the judge stands. He comes around and he stands in front of the man. He takes off his robe and he pulls out of his pocket a checkbook and writes a check for $50,000 and gives it to the bailiff. He walks over to the marshals and he offers his hands and he said, put the cuffs on me. 
for I will serve this man's sentence. And we think, that's crazy. What judge would do that? That's absolutely crazy. And you can only imagine the person that has been convicted. You know, they're sitting there watching this go on. Why would this person do this for me? How in the world did I ever deserve this? How, why would this person give themselves for me? That's what God has done for us. And you know why? Because it loves us. And I thank God every day that he loves even my brokenness. My past, my present, and what is to come. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life.